continuing where we left off last week. If you've got a Bible, open it up. Follow along. See that the authority is here and not with me. And actually, before we pray, I'm going to say this again at the end. We're meeting in the convention center, Lord willing, next Saturday. So this is our last Saturday night service here at the compound. And we're, we're meeting at the Allied Convention Center in Kabisi, across from Jimmy Mall, 10.30 a.m. in the morning is when the service starts, and it'll be great to be back. It's been two years and four months. Many of you have never been there except to get a wristband put on you and locked away in your home. I promise that won't happen on this trip. So I'll say this again, 10.30 a.m. If you have kids, show up a little bit early. We do have nursery. It's going to continue next week from 1 to 3, 4. 1 to 4-year-olds. I'm supposed to know that. It's 1 to 4, right? 1 to 4. We'll have nursery going on at the same time. It'll be great. There's even going to be, like, coffee there and refreshments. So... It'll be sweet to be back in the convention center. Al Hosen, you do have to have the 14-day green pass to get in. I think their security will be checking it at the front door. Say that again? Zero to three-year-olds for kids. Thank you, Caroline. Before we begin, let's pray. Father, we love your word. We thank you for your word. There is no word like your word, true always. Your word is like a hammer that breaks a rock. It's a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. So would you, Lord, by the Spirit, work on us by your word now through Ezra 4. Please, God, would you help us? No one can be saved by themselves. With man, it is impossible But with God, all things are possible. And so we look to you, Father, for help even now. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, here's the big picture of Ezra chapter 4. There are adversaries in the land. You can see that in verse 1. Adversaries just means enemies. And they're trying to stop the work that the Jews are engaged in, the work of rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. And they have two major strategies, two major tactics for how they want to accomplish this. Their first strategy is to be friendly. It's to be friends with the Jews, to become partners with them in the work of preparing for worship, to pull them away from the true worship of God. It's an interesting strategy to be friends with the Jews in order to ruin the work. As pleasant as it seems, that's what's going on. It's a strategy to ruin God's work in Jerusalem. And then when that doesn't work, the adversaries openly oppose and pressure the Jews to stop. They try to scare them. They slander them. They physically oppress them at the end. So that's in verses 4 through 24. So they they try to be friends with them in verses 1 through 3, And then 4 through 24, they try to turn up the pain level until the Jews are not willing to keep going. 
The pattern here that we see in Ezra 4 is one that Jesus lays out as common to all God's people in the parable of the sower in the New Testament. So Jesus tells a parable of a sower. A sower is someone who plants by throwing seed out. And he tells the story of a man who goes out and he's throwing seed. Some seed lands on the road, on the path. Birds come, immediately take it away. It never, it never takes root. It never grows. The next seed falls on rocky ground, and it actually starts to grow. But because it's rocky and there's not much room for root, when the heat comes, the plant falls away. Some other seed falls among thorns, so it also begins to grow. But thorns grow around it and slowly choke it out. So that plant dies. Only the fourth group of seed that's thrown into the good soil grows. And Jesus explains why he told this parable. So I'm just going to read now from Mark chapter 4. This is Jesus explaining why he told this story about the sower. Mark 4, verses 14 through 20. Jesus says, The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that's sown in them. So he's saying, People are sharing the gospel, the good news, God's word. And in some people, many people, Satan comes and nothing happens. They hear, nothing goes on. No growth, no change, nothing happens. They don't care. Jesus goes on. These are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. So among the seed that actually starts to grow, two types start, but they don't finish. Some of these plants fall away because it's too painful. Jesus says on account of persecution, they wither up and they fall away. And others start to grow, but they don't finish because they're choked out, not by pain, but by pleasure. Pleasure and pain both present problems to the plants. Friendship with the world and persecution from the world, both of them, Jesus is telling us, both of them can be threats to God's work in your life. And that's the threat these Jews in Ezra 4 are facing, both friendship with the world and pressure from the world. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at these threats in Ezra 4, one at a time, friendship with the world and pressure from the world. And as we talk about each of these, we're going to see what resources God has given to you in Jesus to endure. 
And here's why this matters. Jesus says, this is Mark 13, 13. Jesus says, the one who endures, that means perseveres, keeps going, lasts, the one who endures to the end will be saved. It's not the one who said a prayer once to receive Christ, although that's very important. It's not the one who had a big experience at some point in their life that was a turning point, although that's important. It's the one who endures to the end who will be saved. If your faith is real, then you must fight temptation, temptations from both pleasure to leave Jesus for some other pleasure or pain because it's not worth it. You must resist and fight these temptations until the day you die. And they won't let up until the day that you die. If you don't, you won't be saved. Your faith will be exposed as false. So this really is life and death for us. To learn what it means to wage war against temptations to leave Jesus. So we're going to start with the temptations of friendship with the world. Verses 1 through 4. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we've been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. So a little background. Assyria had come way before Judah was taken away. Assyria had come and destroyed northern Israel. And what they did was they took all of the Israelites out of the land except for the very poorest of the people. And then they took other nations that they, they had conquered and they put those people into the land with the very few Israelites who were remaining. Let's see if that'll stand right there. So, first, Esarhaddon, you can see his name in verse 2. He's an Assyrian king who did this. Later on, you'll see the name Osnapper. That's in verse 10. They're the ones who took the Israelites away and put other nations into the land of northern Israel. The people they brought into the land were idol worshipers. Now, they would take the God of Israel as one of their gods, but they ended up worshiping him any way they wanted. These were not the true people of God. They added God to their list of gods, and they worshiped him how they saw fit, but not according to his word. They weren't God's people. These were later known as Samaritans. So when you get to the New Testament and you're trying to figure out What's the deal with the Jews and the Samaritans not liking each other? These are the Samaritans. Verse 1 tells us here that they are adversaries, enemies, but they're friendly. They're friendly enemies. They say they want to help rebuild the temple and the city. You see that verse 2? Let us build with you. We worship God as you do, and we've been sacrificing to him. You might say, okay... This sounds like a great deal. Why wouldn't you accept help from people who are trying to help you repair the temple and repair the city? But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the other leaders in verse 3, they say, no, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. We can trade together. We can do business together. 
But when it comes to building the temple and preparing it for worship, this is only for the people of God. What's happening? What's the big deal? Why can't they let these people join in? God had told the Jews that they were to separate themselves from the surrounding nations. And he didn't do it as a form of ethnic superiority or racism. God told the Jews to separate themselves from the people of the land so that their hearts wouldn't be turned away to other gods. So listen to this. This is Deuteronomy 7. God's going to tell the Jews why they cannot marry someone who's not Jewish. So this is Deuteronomy 7.3. And just listen. It's not about ethnicity or race. It's about who you trust, your God. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. So marriage is the kind of close relationship that has the power to turn your heart. That's why the Jews should not marry non-Jews. They should be careful. And it's also why they should be careful as they build the city and the temple. They should not be close partners as they prepare for worship with people who are not true worshipers of God so that their hearts won't be turned away. That's what's going on here. Paul, in the New Testament, okay, so this is Old Testament, Ezra 4, Deuteronomy. Paul, in the New Testament, is going to apply the same thinking to the church. This is 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 through 18. Listen to what Paul says here. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So a yoke is a harness that keeps two oxen together, so they're traveling at the same speed. They're close. So he's saying, don't be yoked, connected like that, in that kind of close relationship with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. So just as the Jews shouldn't bring non-Jews into the building of the temple, believers who are the temple of God, according to Paul here, should not bind themselves to unbelievers in the closest of their relationships. The reason I say closest of relationships and not all relationships is because Paul says in the book before this, 1 Corinthians 5, he says, of course you associate with unbelievers. You have to. You'd have to leave this world if you weren't going to associate with unbelievers. We love them. We share the gospel with them. We're doing business with them. But here in 2 Corinthians 6, he's talking about our closest relationships. He's saying don't be yoked together with unbelievers. 
your best companions, the people you spend most of your time with, your business partners, your spouse. God made us to be influenced by other people. Because you could say, well, I love Jesus. Nothing's ever going to change that. It doesn't matter who I hang out with. I'm not going to be influenced like that. That's not me. It is you because you're a human being. It's not just some personal weakness. It's how God made people. He made us to be influenced by others and to influence others. That's what it, part of what it means to be a human. It's not a question of will you be influenced. The question is who will you be influenced by? It's what it is to be a human. Here's why this matters. When God first saves a person, he wakes their spiritual senses up. By senses, I mean like our five senses are hearing, sight, smell, taste, touch. Those are senses. You have spiritual senses. And before you hear the gospel, they're dead. You can't see God. You can't hear his voice. You don't see him as glorious. Nothing happens. But somewhere along the way, you heard that Jesus died to pay for your sins. You heard that Jesus came to bring you to God. And God gave you life. For the first time, you saw that God was beautiful with your soul. You heard his voice and you tasted glory. And you knew this is where life is. Everyone else, though, who hasn't experienced that is still looking for life in money, their earthly possessions, fame, earthly comfort, earthly security. They're worshiping the creation because they have no sight or taste of the glory of the creator. The fight of faith for a Christian. So you've seen God's beauty when you heard the gospel. You tasted. He's glorious. This is a glorious God. You heard his word and it did something to you. The fight of faith as a Christian is to grow in seeing and enjoying Christ in your soul and to keep money and pleasure and earthly comfort and earthly security in their place so that they never dull or lessen your soul's ability to see the glory of God, hear his voice, and taste his goodness. Other people can help that or hurt that. And you can do that for other people. You can help that or you can hurt because God made you to be influenced. We will begin to love the pleasures of our companions, both towards Jesus and away from him. The danger is that we would surround ourselves with those who they love everything else but Jesus. And our senses, the sense we had, this is the glorious God where life is found. I can taste his goodness. It dulls slowly, slowly, slowly. 
to lead us away from enjoying Jesus because the people around us enjoy other things more than him, slowly. Many of us are much more in danger of our love for Christ going out with a pleasant whimper than with a violent bang. It's just the case. The way that thorns choke out a plant is not by violently beating them into submission, but by slowly, slowly, slowly choking out the life. And that's what can happen when we fall in love with this world and we lose sight of the fact that God is better than it all. And other people can help or hurt that. This is why the New Testament says, don't give up the gathering of yourselves together, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So that's Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Jesus Christ has given you protection against the love of this world. And it's through gathering with other believers. That's his protection for you. I mean, there's so much I could say about the purpose of our gatherings. We gather here. I mean, this is our church's gathering. We gather here as, a believer, as believers to offer acceptable worship to God and to build one another up. If we're the temple of God, we're here to encourage and build one another up offering acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. This time is not intended for unbelievers. Now, we're really happy when they come. And Paul says, when they come, and they will, 1 Corinthians 14, you need to make sure they understand what's going on. But this is not organized primarily to draw in people who can't worship God and have no taste for his glory. This is intended to build believers up and to offer acceptable worship to God, just like Ezra 4. But even outside of our gatherings, just an encouragement to you is be committed to your closest, deepest relationships, being people who help you see the glory of Jesus more. Be committed to that. Just do a little catalog of the way you spend your time and who you spend your time with. You must spend time with unbelievers. You must. And you should. But are your deepest, closest companions those who draw your heart to enjoy Jesus more? Your closest companions, the ones you spend the most time with. And I just want to insert here, this does include social media and entertainment. A lot of us don't think about those voices as our companions, but we do spend a lot of time with them, don't, don't we? And they are influencing you, whether you think about whether you think they are or not. The people you watch on TV, you're spending time with them. Problem is you have no influence over them. It's just coming one way. The people you read on social media, scrolling, 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 they are influencing you. So be committed to your closest companions being real, living, breathing Christians who lead your heart to savor Jesus more. On the cross, when Jesus took our sins, and he did so that we could be forgiven, one of the things that his righteousness purchased for us was the Holy Spirit. But the way the Holy Spirit encourages us is directly, so the Spirit ministers to you, 
But that's not all. This is amazing. That's not all. The way God wants to encourage you is for his spirit to fill other believers and for the encouragement to come that way. That's how he wants to use other Christians in your life. It's how he wants to use you and others around you. So, be committed for your deepest relationships to be those who help you see Jesus and help others trust and see Jesus more. This is how we endure together as a church. Okay, let's talk about the temptations of pressure from this world. So, first three verses, the threat to God's people, friendship with the world. In verses 4 through 24, we're going to see the threat is pressure on them, turning up the pain so that they'll stop the work that God has called them to. So just like Jesus said, there's danger of being choked out by the cares and pleasures of this world. We can also wither under the heat of persecution and oppression. And Satan will use whichever works on you. It may be pleasure. It may be pain. He doesn't care. Whatever it works. It may be some combination of the two. But we need to be on our guard. Here in our passage, pressure comes through fear, slander, and physical force. Verse 4 and 5. The people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build, made them afraid to build, and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purposes all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So the king's counselors were being bribed, Verse 4 says that most likely they're threatening punishment if the people continue on with the work, trying to make them scared to keep going. When we're afraid, there's a temptation that comes with it. We actually saw last week the people were afraid and they ran to God. But there is a temptation to run away from him that comes with fear. The temptation is this. God's not going to take care of you. This scary thing that could happen, this scary thing on the horizon, God's not going to take care of you. He's not going to provide for you. Either you need to freak out right now, or you need to work, 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 work to make sure that everything turns out okay for your future. And that's what Satan wants. He wants us to abandon God's direction and care for us and to chart our own course, the safest course that we can for ourselves. So should the Jews, should they abandon this project? That would be the temptation. We're going we're gonna to get in trouble? More pain? If we keep up, should we just abandon? Just don't build the temple. Or we could go hire Egypt to come help us out. This is an everyday temptation for Christians. You just, if you just take stock tomorrow of your day, this is everyday kind of stuff, fear. Is it health? Some of you are sick and you're worried about it. Some of you aren't even sick, but you're worried about what could come down the way. And it consumes a lot of emotional energy, doesn't it? You lay awake panicking at night thinking about your health. Or you just work, 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 vitamins, perfect regimen. I'm going to make sure that as long as it turns you away from God and trusting in him, that's what Satan wants. Is it your family? Are you worried about your family, afraid of what's going to happen to your kids, your husband? Is it money? 
don't know that we're going to have enough. Is it job? Where's my visa going to come from? What do you do with those? Satan wants you to turn away from God to yourself or to something else. We panic when we turn away from God and we realize we don't have enough to handle what's coming. That's why we panic. We're turned away from God. We're just realizing once we did, we don't have enough. Or we think we have enough and we work, work, work to make sure a good future happens for us. That's what Satan wants. But God has help for you when you're afraid. He has help for you. And his help comes in the form of promises. God promises when you're afraid that he will exalt you, lift you up if you turn to him. This was our fighter verse just a few weeks ago. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 8. Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, lift you up, casting your anxieties on him. So how do you humble yourself before God so that he exalts you? The way you do it is you throw your fears on him. What are you afraid of? You throw it on God. Oh, God, help me. That's how he'll exalt you, because he cares for you. Psalm 55, 22 says this, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. Here's how he helps when fear tempts you. When fear tempts you and says, God's not going to provide. You need to handle this for yourself or you need to freak out right now. You say to your soul, no. God promises that if, instead, if I turn to him with my fears and my anxieties, I come to him in prayer and I cast them on him, he will exalt me Lift me up, and he will sustain me. That's how God helps you when you're afraid. It's through a promise like that. He will provide for your future better than anyone else. That's what he promises. The people aren't just made afraid. They're also slandered. So slander is when untrue things are said about you so that other people won't like you. So they're basically lies being told about you to get others to not like you. And this exerts tremendous pressure on us. Tremendous pressure. From verses 6 to 16, we hear that there are letters being written to different kings of Persia. And they're slandering the Jews. So the people of the land are sending letters to the kings of Persia, slandering the Jewish people. Here's some of what they have to say. This is verses 12 through 13. Be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired." So the adversaries of the Jews are accusing them of being wicked while they're trying to be righteous. So this is a lie. And it's a tremendous pressure on us when people do this to us because we want to be liked. Every one of us wants to be liked 
Some of us will go to almost any length for people to like us or to avoid people not liking us. When people don't like us and it's for things that aren't even true, it can be tempting to disassociate from Jesus, put separation between us and Jesus if he's the reason that lies are being told about us. We just want to make it stop. We'll do anything to make it stop. A few years ago, I was meditating on what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 11, and 12, and just thinking how difficult this would be. So Matthew 5, 11, Jesus says this, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. I know that's interesting. Blessed are you when they say all sorts of evil things about you that are false on my account. It's one thing for people to tell the truth about you and to hate you for what's true. It's another thing for people to not like you because you're a Christian and then to lie about you so that other people don't like you for things that aren't even true. I mean, if someone, if someone was going around saying, John at Redeemer, he preaches from the Bible and he says things like, you need to trust in Jesus if you're going to be saved. I hate that guy. Well, I don't want anyone to hate me, but that doesn't bother me too much because it's true. It's true. If people were going around and saying, John at Redeemer, that guy's abusive. You should listen to him talk. He's abusive and he's a racist on top of it. Every week that guy gets up and he just says whatever comes to his mind because he loves to hear himself talk. We hate that guy. Well, that's a totally different kind of pressure because now I'm going, wait, wait, wait no. Here, let me explain. I, I'm not a bad guy. I, and some people will do anything to make it stop. It's harder when people are telling lies about you. Not only do people not like you for true things, they don't like you, and a lot of it's for things that aren't even true about you. And this will come your way if you're a Christian. It will come your way. Listen, this will come your way. It will. People will hate you and insult you, and they won't just hate you because you're a Christian. They will hate you for things that are not true about you because you're a Christian. And there's a strong temptation to just slowly back away from your connection to Jesus. I mean, just this past week, I read about an actor. You would, almost all of you know who he is if you saw his picture several years ago talking about Jesus, his relationship with Christ, how important it was. And for years, this guy has been enduring abuse. People just saying terrible things about him. And it's because of his association with Jesus. And this last week, he's backing off saying, well, you know, I'm really just religious. I'm not the, the Christianity thing. Or I'm not religious. I'm just spiritual Christianity thing. Putting distance because it's too much. The slander is too much. So 
what help can Jesus give to us? Because this will come your way. It will. In little, ba- in little ways and big ways, it will come. Here's the help Jesus gives. More promises. So back to Matthew 5, 11. I'm just going to add the next verse. Verse 12. Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. You're blessed. Why are you blessed? Blessed are you when people hate you, persecute you, utter all kinds of false things about you. Why are you blessed? For, verse 12, your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you continue to trust, slander's coming your way. People hate you, and they're saying things that aren't true about you. But if you continue to trust, cling to Jesus, you are blessed because your reward is great in heaven. 1 Peter 4, 14 says it this way. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. When people insult you, God's spirit rests on you. His glory rests on you. So the way you fight the temptation to just abandon Jesus is to remember, no, this means reward. This means the spirit of God and glory is resting on me. Thank you, Jesus. I can endure knowing that. That's how you fight. And finally, the people are are forced to stop the work. They're physically prevented from continuing to build. So the Jews are slandered. The king of Persia then decrees that the work be stopped. That's verses 17 through 22. He says, all right, cut it out if this stuff is true. And the following verse... 23 tells us the effect. So this is verse 23. Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews of Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. So now by physical force, the people are being stopped. It's not just fear of pain. It's not just being lied about. They're physically being forced to stop. Physical force is being exerted against them. Consider what what temptation might come to the Jews at this point. God, you released us from exile for what? So that we could come back to the land, live our lives in fear, have people lie about us, and then be physically oppressed for following you. That's the temptation. Maybe it's not worth it. That's how pain and discomfort will tempt us away from Christ. If following Christ brings this kind of suffering, Or if following Christ doesn't take my suffering away, is it worth it? Why follow him at all? This is one of the reasons Jesus told the parable of the sower. Because he knew the power of pressure. And he knew that it would come to you and to me. And he wanted us to be ready so that we could endure. That's why he told us what would happen beforehand. Here's some more promises from Jesus to help us when we suffer, to endure to the end and not turn away. 
1 Peter 4, 12 through 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Why would you rejoice if you're sharing Christ's sufferings? So that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you suffer with Jesus, it means gladness is coming your way when he returns. That's how you endure. Hebrews 10, 35 through 36. How do we endure? Here's a promise to hold on to, to fight. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. It's through endurance that we receive what is promised. Jesus Christ won a prize for you. You didn't win it for yourself. You don't deserve it. Jesus won a prize for you. He won everlasting life in his presence. Ephesians 2 says, it's riches of kindness being poured out on you forever. That's what Jesus earned for you. And Jesus wants you to know that whatever suffering comes, fear, slander, force, it will lead many to fall away, but those who endure receive what Christ has purchased. He wants you to know that through your endurance, you will be saved. So in Ezra 4, we've seen a New Testament pattern that temptations come through pleasure and pain, friendship with the world, and pressure from the world. Now, when we talked about friendship, the temptation of friendship with the world, we mostly focused on God's help coming to us through God's people. And when we talked about the temptations that come from pressure, we mostly talked about God's help coming through his promises. But you should know that whether you are being tempted because of pleasure or pain, God's people and God's word are for your help in both. God's people are a gift to you from him to keep you. And his promises are given to keep you. So grow in your commitment to other believers in the body. Grow in it. This does not mean throw away your relationship with unbelievers. But invest in having voices in your life that help you taste and see and hear the glories of Christ. And grow in using the promises of God against your particular temptations. I think that this really is what it looks like to be mature as a Christian. It's when you're tempted in the moment, taking what God says from his word, his promises, and holding on to it in your particular temptation day to day. That's what it looks like. And that's how we endure. So as we close, and we really are closing, Here's one, one final word about endurance. When we're tempted and we go to other people or God's word for help, often the relief that we want is not immediate. Did you hear that? 
when we're facing temptation, we go to God's people, we go to God's word, often the relief that we want is not immediate. Sometimes it is, and when it is, it's amazing. You pray for help, you talk to someone 15 minutes later, yes, thank you, Lord. But often we wait. Our chapter ends with the Jews being physically forced to stop building, and it will take 15 years before they start again. Consider that, 15 years. The fight of faith is a long one. Whether God helps us sooner or later, he may bring relief in 15 minutes or 15 years. This life or the life to come, he will bring relief. So don't give up. Don't give up 14 years in to a 15-year period of persecution. It may take your whole life. It will take your whole life. But God will help, and he uses his people and his word to keep us going. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would make us a body that builds one another up. As a temple, we grow We offer acceptable worship to you, and we help one another taste and see your goodness more and more. Lord, would you keep us from being choked out by the pleasures of this world? None of them compare to you. None of them hold a candle to the blaze of your glory. But we become so blind. Help us. Help us through your people and your word to endure the temptations that pleasure give, the temptation of pain. Would you be our help and relief? We long for your return, Jesus, when you will bring to us all that you have earned and promised. We praise you and ask for this help in Jesus' name. Amen.